message this morning, here is simply the big idea that I want you to be able to take away from the narrative that we're going to be covering. When your hope for what God will do dies, loyalty to Jesus is the path forward. When your hope for what God will do dies, loyalty to Jesus is the path forward. So this morning in our passage from Mark, the disciples have fled, and yet it's several women and an unlikely man who continue to loyally follow Jesus, Jesus, the Messiah whom they've been looking for, the one who is supposed to come into Jerusalem and set up his kingdom, and yet their hope in him has led them to Jerusalem, and he's dead. Last week, we saw Jesus on the cross, staying on the cross, being mocked, if you're the Christ, come down and save yourself. Jesus is on the cross, and he cried out from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with that cry, we know that Jesus, who had only experienced eternal love from the Father, a perfect relationship with him in eternity past, was now moving into a very different kind of relationship with the Father where he was experiencing the judgment upon himself that we deserved for our sins. In John's Gospel, it's at this point in the crucifixion that the soldiers pierce Jesus' side. The two criminals on each side of Jesus must have still been alive because The text says that the soldiers moved along to the criminals and broke their legs. This would keep them from being able to heave themselves up, absorb some air, and exhale. The legs are broken. They can't heave themselves up. They're going to asphyxiate and die. But when the soldiers got to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. So instead of breaking his legs, the text says in John 19, verses 34 and 36, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Here is Jesus living out yet another passage from the Old Testament, another passage being fulfilled in his life. We'll talk about that in a little bit in the sermon. But here's Jesus. The scene is death. He is suspended on the cross. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. We know that his hands and feet have been nailed to the cross His face has been punched by the guards and soldiers the night and the morning of. So that's more than likely a swollen and bloodied face. His back has been whipped. Now his side has been punctured and pierced with the sword up under his ribs. And the body of the Messiah, the body whom everybody was hoping for, this person is now suspended on the cross Limp. Hope for so many people now has died because Jesus is dead. And that's the sight that we're introduced to as we move from verses 39 now into verses 40 to verses 47. So simply two points to the sermon. I'll give them to you as we go. Point number one is this. 
the faithful women who followed Jesus. The faithful women who followed Jesus. At the crucifixion, there are three women who mark names, several others whom he doesn't name. But of the ones he names, there's Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is from the city of Magdala, Magdalene, Magdala, which is up around the region of Galilee. And we know that from Luke's gospel, Jesus has delivered her from a life that was dominated by seven demons. Um, absent from the scripture are the kind of rumors that fly around about Mary Magdalene that she was a harlot. And even more absent from the scriptures is that she was the mistress of Jesus. If you're here and you know some things about the Bible, you might think, oh, this is the Mary Magdalene who was Jesus' secret lover. The Bible says nothing of that. That was only some sort of backtrack rumor. Not true. The other woman who is at the scene is also named Mary. Mark tells us that she is the mother of James, James the Younger, and Joseph, another name for Joseph. Why Mark calls James the Younger, we don't really know. And this is always a time where it's careful for us, it's wise for us to be careful about what we allow to lead us. By that I mean if you watch The Chosen, you're going to hear James the Lesser or James the Smaller and James the Greater. Let your Bible lead your understanding of The Chosen, not The Chosen lead your understanding of the Bible. The text doesn't say why he's called the younger here. And yet, we know that Mary is his mother. This Mary very well might be Jesus' mother. Uh, why do we say that? Because in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we read, Is not this the carpenter, speaking of Jesus, the son of Mary, and the brother of, and here it is, James and Joseph, the same two individuals who are named here being sons of Mary. Others think that this is a relative, maybe an aunt of Jesus with cousins named James and Joseph. I'm just inclined to say that this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Third woman who is here, the text says, is her name is Salome. And again, who is this woman? If we read the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, it says that among the women were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph or Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee were James and John. So Salome would be then the mother of James and John. So here's the group of ladies at the cross soaking in the scene of death. What Mark says about these women is that they are characterized by a level of commitment. Verse 41 says that when he was in Galilee, they, that is the women, followed him. And not only did they follow him, but the text says in verse 41 that they were ministering to him or they were serving him with what they had. Now what's clear here is that Jesus' ministry is very much a different kind of ministry. Rabbis would not have allowed women to be their quote-unquote disciples. But here is Jesus looking at women and saying they're not any lesser than men. He's characterized as one who is a savior for all. I think about Peter's words about 
Husbands dwelling with wives according to understanding. Why? Because they are joint heirs with you of the grace of life. And so one of the things that you're going to see in the life of Jesus is that he sees these men and women as both precious to him. And out of that, there is a response where Mary, Mary, and Salome and other women are still following. In fact, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, it's important for us to remember how Mark has characterized the 12 up to this point. You remember from the garden, now Jesus' trip back into Jerusalem, what characterizes the 12 is that they've all fled. They're gone. And yet it's these ladies here who are committed in their faith and following Jesus all the way to the cross. One of the ladies, Mary Magdalene, is worth noting. On Friday, we had a sermon preview and several folks come in. We look at the sermon and just talk about it and try to help uh, the flow of things. And one of the folks there, one of the gals, she brought this up. Think about Mary Magdalene for just a moment. Think about her past. Before Christ dominated by a life of seven demons controlling her. Spiritually, she was dead, helpless, bound by those demons. She had experienced something new because of Jesus, new life because of Jesus. And now she sees Jesus, his corpse up on the cross, lifeless and limp, yet she knows that Jesus has done something powerful in her life. Her faith, not knowing how this whole situation is going to turn out, kept her there all along the way. And many of you women have gone through hard times when the faithful ones, the men, have fled. And yet it's your faith in Jesus that has kept you close when hope has seemed to die. I would dare say that most of us in this room were first told the gospel of Jesus Christ by faithful women, such as our moms or a Sunday school teacher. I was talking with one of our preschool or kids' campus teachers this last week who was sharing with me about her lesson on the gospel. And I'm guessing that many of the fours and five-year-olds in that room don't hear the gospel at home. They were hearing the gospel from a faithful woman. Timothy is encouraged by Paul. Of Timothy, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. Just one of the things that I think is important is that here at the cross, we see women who are faithful looking at the crucifixion, albeit from a distance, and yet their faithfulness, not knowing how things will turn out, is what is keeping them in step with Jesus, at least following him now. Women, be encouraged. Be encouraged that God is calling you to faithfully follow Jesus. And even in the times when your hope has seemed to die, it seems as though God is leading you down a path and he set a plan forward and you're aiming to follow him and all of a sudden it goes dark. This is not the plan that I was expecting. It seems as though hope has died. 
God would have you still remain faithful in following Jesus, even though you may not see a path forward. Faithfully follow him forward. So here's the women. Hope seems to have died. They're remaining loyal to Jesus, not necessarily knowing what happens next, but they're there. And now Mark shifts our attention to a man. So point number two in this narrative is a faithful man who identified with Jesus. A faithful man who identified with Jesus. Verse 42, Mark tells us the day. It says, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Okay, so this is Friday. There are some that speculate that there were two Sabbaths in this particular year. You can dig into that if you want to. We'll just say it's Friday. Tomorrow is Saturday. All work has to be done before this Sabbath day. All work has to be done before sunset on Friday. And the work that they're looking at is that a corpse is hanging up on the cross and it has to be buried. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says about the dead bodies. His body shall not remain all night on a tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So it's the responsibility of the Jews to take their fellow Jews and get them off the tree, get them off the cross, and bury them. And there were three ways that a corpse could be buried. In Jerusalem, if you just had to really quickly get rid of the corpse, there's the city wall, and right outside the city wall is this deep valley called the Valley of Hinnom, otherwise known as Gehenna. Trash is always thrown there. There's smoldering fires that are going there. The, the fire never ceases. That's language that Jesus uses about this valley. You could take the corpse, toss it up over the city wall, and it's done. That's one way to get rid of it. The second way to get rid of it is a shallow grave, a common grave. Quick, dig something a couple feet deep, throw the dirt on top of the corpse, maybe throw some rocks on top of it. It's an unmarked grave. It's done. And that body is gone. But the third way would be an honored burial, one in which the dead would be buried in somebody's private tomb. But to give an honored burial, you had to have resources. And not only did you have to have resources, more important to the story of Mark, the one giving the burial would be stepping forward and saying, I identify with that person. That person, I want to honor them. They're special to me. So Mark introduces us to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is located approximately 20 miles north of Jerusalem and, and to the west. And it's very possible that Jesus' ministry from up in Galilee, heading from north down to south, came into contact with Joseph. He's from this area of Arimathea. Joseph says, or Mark says, that he's a member, a, a respected member of the council. What's this council? This council is the Sanhedrin. The same council that just last night condemned Jesus to death and handed him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified on a cross. Joseph is a member. There's 70 members in the Sanhedrin. We don't know if all 70 came together, but the majority of them came together and condemned Jesus. Even though Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin, Luke's gospel tells us that when the decision came down, 
there was at least one member that did not consent with the decision, and that's Joseph. Now, third, that leads to the next point about Joseph. We could call him a closet Christian. And the reason why is because Mark says here in verse 43 that he is looking for the kingdom of God. Now, Mark, Mark's message from the beginning of the gospel is that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the gospel. Joseph has heard the message somewhere, and he is looking for the kingdom of God. But there's something that has taken place in his heart because in John's gospel, here's what John says in John 19, verse 38. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but he was one who was secretly doing it for fear of the Jews. So here he is wearing his religious outer garments, being part of the Sanhedrin, believing in the message of the kingdom and believing that Jesus is bringing in the kingdom. And yet he's doing it sort of under wraps the whole time. Now what we see next, another characteristic of Joseph here, is the text says in verse 43 that Joseph took courage. And here is the defining moment in Joseph's life. He takes courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body. Now think about this. This is huge because to ask for the body is to say that I want to honor this individual and I am aligning myself with this individual. The member of the Sanhedrin, the robe-wearing religious leader, part of that group that condemned Jesus to death is now stepping forward much like five young people were stepping forward today and saying, I align myself with this man. I want to give him a proper burial. I want the body of Jesus. I want to be known as someone who honors him. I can only wonder what was going on in Joseph's mind as he now publicly comes into everyone's view as identifying himself with Jesus. No one saw this coming at all. And I just think, folks, some of you might be in a place in life where you carry the garments of not wanting to be known. And there may be some even in here who, much like our young people today, sort of threw those garments off and said, I want to publicly align myself with Jesus. That would be a great step for several of you who have not publicly come forth and said, I want to identify with Jesus that way. It's also encouraging to think that God is quite capable of reaching into the hearts of people whom we never imagined. Here is a leader, and the power of the gospel has come to his ears, and it's traveled from his ears to his heart, and he is a secret disciple of Christ, now going public. And if a religious leader of the Jewish Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death can be saved, God can save anyone. You might be looking at people in your life and wondering, I know they've heard the message, but what's going on in their hearts? There might be a tension going on that you've never imagined because of the truth that God is using, just piercing, piercing, piercing down into their hearts. 1 Timothy 2 
commands us to pray for our kings and leaders, those in authority over us. And this text in front of us can be the platform of encouragement for us to do so. If a religious leader like Joseph can come to the gospel and be saved, you never know whom God is at work in, in their hearts and lives even this morning. Well, here's another encouragement about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is not acting alone. Again, looking at the parallel gospel in John, we know that there is another ruler of the Jews, another Pharisee who is with Joseph this morning, helping him take the body. Do you remember who it is? It's the guy that showed up in John 3, under the cover of night, and asked Jesus what it means to be born again. It's, fair. it's Nicodemus. John chapter 19, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, and they're going to wrap Jesus' body with all of this. So here are the women who are faithfully following Jesus, even when hope has died. Here is Joseph, faithfully following Jesus, can't see a path forward. Here's Nicodemus at the cross, along with Joseph, following him even when hope has died. And Joseph now is taking courage, identifying himself with Jesus, and going forward to pick up the body of Jesus. It's a picture of what sacrifice and loyalty to Jesus looks like when all seems lost. I think many of us have gone through times in our life where we would say, Jesus, I believe that you're leading me this way. Everything seems lined up. And I'm stepping out in faith and I'm following you faithfully, going one step to the next because you've led me here. And all of a sudden the lights go out. And you just say, what's going on? I've seen all of the work that you've done in my life and I've heard the truth and it resonated with me. You've led me up to this point and now the lights go out. For some of you, it was a marriage. You prayed about it, you followed God into marriage and you get to a place and all of a sudden your spouse responds with something that just totally surprises you. And you're like, God, I followed you to this moment in faith. The lights go out. For some of you, it's been decisions about your life. For some of you, it's been maybe circumstances that are taking place or health. You're just faithfully following Jesus along, believing that he is going to continue to open doors, and then all of a sudden, hope dies. And you're living in that tension. What do I do now? The only path forward is to continue in faith. You may not see a door open, but you continue in faith. Okay, Jesus, you've led me up to this point. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to flee. And that's the picture that's going on here. They don't know where to go. They're just being faithful. Joseph is taking courage and identifying himself with Jesus, even when it all seems to be a mess. I think many of you, again, can relate to just the tensions that are taking place in this story. We have no other path forward except to remain faithful to Jesus when the lights go out. Even if we don't know where he's going to lead us next. So Pilate hears the request from Joseph. 
Pilate, he's shocked. He's already dead? That guy went up on the cross not too long ago. So he sends the centurion, asks for him to come to his quarters there, asks the centurion, is he dead? The centurion confirms that he's dead. And after the confirmation from the centurion, Pilate permits Joseph, and I want you to notice the word that's used here. You see it in our ESV. Not every translation might use it, but it is deliberate. Verse 45, he granted the corpse to Joseph. It's more than just the body. In Greek, the word for body is soma. And now he's granting the corpse, and it's a completely different word, dead body. And Mark wants us to see it. He's breathed his last. Here's a corpse that's on the cross. So the women, they saw Jesus breathe his last. Joseph and Nicodemus, they've seen him die. The centurion, he says that Jesus is dead. Most importantly, the word of God says that Jesus is dead. This is what Jesus had predicted. Mark chapter 10, in his third prediction about his trip to Jerusalem and his death, Jesus said this, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. He died. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Philippians 2, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No one there objected to his death. They all confirmed his death. Scripture confirms his death. We believe his death. Why do I say that? Because skeptics throughout history can believe in the historical Jesus but deny his death and say that he went into a fainting spell while he was on the cross, or he faked it, or he was in a swoon. And they just took his body down off the cross prematurely, wrapped it up, snuck it in a tomb, but really he was alive the whole time in order to deny the power of the resurrection. But again, here you see just point after point after point that Jesus is dead. So back to the scene. Joseph publicly has to take the body down off the cross. And there's the middle cross. Did Joseph build a platform? Did he get a ladder? Text doesn't say. Joseph would have more than likely been a wealthy individual who was able to hire this act out to his servants, if you will. But the text, the text puts it on Joseph that here's this distinguished gentleman who is taking the lifeless body of Jesus off the cross. Now, just soaking it in, the hands have been pierced. So either the cross is laid down on its back, or like I said, Joseph is now up in front of everybody, and either the nails have to be pried out, or the hands have to come you know, across the nails completely. The feet have to come out. The body has to be carried, and Joseph apparently is the one who is carrying this corpse to either a nearby table or a flat stone. We know that the body has blood on it from the piercing, from the crown of thorns, from the puncture wounds, from the scourging that's taken place. This is a dirty scene 
that is happening in front of us. And so here's Joseph moving the body to a place, and the text just moves along where it says that Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. So the linen shroud, strips of linen cloth, would have been stretched out. And here's this religious leader who probably hasn't wrapped people's bodies up. You can imagine that it took some effort. They're packing the spices in that Nicodemus had brought. And this was to help keep the stench down and help the body decay. A year from that point, they would take the linens off, gather the bones together, put it in a box called an ossuary, and, and remove the box and put that in a place where family bones were kept. After the body's been wrapped now, Mark tells us that Joseph places him in a tomb. And this burial is yet another prophecy that Scripture is being fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. You see, time and time again, we're seeing Jesus's, all I have is Christ. Um, we're seeing Jesus's life over and over again be the fulfillment of Scripture. And you can't help but then gather the correlating thought that is this. If this is the fulfillment of Scripture, somebody has planned each detail out. This is the sovereignty of God at work in every little step along the way. This is not like a bunch of things have gone wrong and we're writing the story to fit it now. This is a story that has been planned before the foundation of the world for Jesus to come to this point and to die. And God's sovereignty is at work in all of the details of this so that when the lights go out, we know that God is still in control. Mark now brings us to the end here. A stone is rolled against the entrance of the tomb. It was like the final door on hope has been closed. It's sealed up. In verse 47, it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They know the location. They know where his corpse is. It's getting to be late in the day on Friday. And all hope seems to have died. Yet loyalty to Jesus is the only path forward for these folks. And again, as we come through here, we're left in a place where we understand, maybe not able to put words in our mouth to describe it, but this scene helps us, and we can understand the tension that is here, that there are times where the lights are out, where hope seems dead, Many of you are going through times when hope in what God will do just seems to be dead. The way forward is simply to live by faith in Jesus, following him again today and again tomorrow, trusting, living by faith. There in the tomb, Jesus' body will lay for Friday night, all day Saturday, and hope will seem lost. 
But then comes Sunday morning. So let's pray.